Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. I look forward to continuing our study uh, in this short epistle by the Apostle Paul. If you want to find that in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 998 as we continue um, our adventure through this book. And I trust God will bless us this morning as he does in his word. And while you're finding your way there, it's, um, I would like to let you know that it is uh, Rob, Robin and Ed Presser's last Sunday here. And uh, they are moving on to greener pastures, I suppose, or maybe browner pastures, I don't know. But uh, they are headed up to Pennsylvania to be closer to family. And so this will be their last Sunday. Of course, they've been here and Hamilton members of this church for at least two decades from what I understand. And I know they will be sorely missed. And so be sure to uh, say farewell to them in God's speed this morning. And I think it would probably uh, be what good for us in a moment to lift them up in prayer. So I trust uh, you'll join me in that. But first, let's consider the word of God here in Titus chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, hear now the word of God. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, Or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those. Who contradicted. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now in which we can set our hearts upon. We do ask that you would come through your spirit and great power, that he might help us to understand your word and um, rejoice in your word and apply it to our lives. And so we pray for help even now. I pray that you would fill us with a sense of anticipation that the one true God desires to speak to us through the word in which he has given to us. And so maybe all of my brothers and sisters even now would pray in their hearts, Father, let me hear from you today. Will you speak to me? And that we would be somewhat in awe, though we do this every week, don't we? That we would be in awe that the God of the universe wants to speak to the likes of us. And that that would fill our hearts with great joy and anticipation. Father, we do pray for our brother Ed and our dear sister Robin, and uh, we are thankful for them, Father. We're thankful for the decades they gave to your people here called Hamilton Baptist Church. And now as they go, uh, move closer to family up in Pennsylvania, Father, we pray that you would go with them as we trust you will, and that you would make straight their paths, and that, Father, you would lead them into another faith community where that they can continue to serve you and your people. So bless them and use them, guide them and lead them as we trust you will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was Dwight D. Eisenhower in his autobiography who wrote about an earlier event in his military career when a junior officer was caught cheating playing cards. Eisenhower writes, when he came in, I had laid out the cards on the front desk. Are these yours? Do you recognize them? He flushed and said, no, he couldn't. Well, I can show you exactly where you have marked them. Would you like me to do it? He stammered, no. To end it, I asked, would you rather resign at once for the good of the service or would you like to be tried by court-martial? I'll submit my resignation this afternoon, he said. Two or three days later, the congressman from his district came into my office, accompanied with the officer's father. The congressman introduced the latter as one of his most important constituents and suggested that I withdraw the son's resignation and transfer him to another camp. I declined politely. This would be passing the problem on to another commander. After the congressman argued and blustered a bit, 
He asked whether I could take out of the resignation the words for the good of the service. No, was my reply. It seems Ike thought that leadership required character. So if you cheat and steal, then you're not fit to lead. Now, I think we read that into modern ears. That seems a bit too much, doesn't it? I mean, this seems like decisions of a bygone era. This seems antiquated to us. After all, we no longer care about a leader's character. I mean, isn't that true, our country? I mean, if we're honest, I mean, who cares? You steal, who cares? You, you, you cheat on your wife, who cares? You're, you're a poor father, who cares? As long as you get the job done, right? That's what we say. And by the way, I'm not being partisan. This goes um, throughout both political parties, does it not? But we, 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 we don't even care anymore, it seems to me. We have, we've no, very few of us have the conviction that seems that Eisenhower had. But there is one that does. There was one that actually does care about the character of leaders. You might be able to guess who it might be. None other than God himself. He seems to care quite a bit. He, by the way, he does care about the character of political leaders. My, my wife and I were reading on the front porch a week or so ago, Proverbs chapter 28. It seems to be all about the moral characteristic of those who um, seek to lead politically. And it seems like God is very much interested in that. But of course, I'm not preaching Proverbs 28 today, am I? Um, we are in Titus 1. And it's here that we see that God cares not about the character of political leaders, but the, cares about the character of church leaders. If you remember last week, we saw that Paul and Titus had, at some point in the early 60s AD, traveled to the island of Crete. There, Paul, along with Titus, started a number of these young and fledgling churches. Evidently, Paul has to leave Crete before he's able to appoint elders or leaders in that church, as was Paul's pattern. In a previous mission trip, recorded in the book of Acts, we see that Paul would go from city to city, and he would start the various churches. And then in Acts 14, we learned he went back to those, each of those cities and he appointed elders for them in each church. So that was Paul's missionary strategy. He would go and he would share the gospel, leading individuals to Christ. Those he led to Christ, he would form them into a gospel preaching church. And then he would raise up leadership or elders in order to lead that church. We call that today church planting. And it seems to me that Paul wanted a gospel preaching church in every town. You even see that in verse 5 of chapter 1 here in Titus. It makes me wonder, just by the way, are there towns here in northern Virginia and in, in western Loudoun that do not have a gospel preaching church that God might use Hamilton Baptist Church to see that one is, uh, is planted there? And I trust, uh, as you know, we have been praying about how we might be engaged in that. Well, anyways, Paul has to leave here before he, he establishes these churches with, with their leadership, which makes them vulnerable. They're vulnerable for a couple reasons. They're vulnerable, first of all, is Crete is a terribly immoral society, perhaps not um, that much different than much of Western society. You see in verse 12, Paul kind of describes using one of the Cretans to do so. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so the culture around them is, is a terrible place. I mentioned last week, it's the, if you will, it's the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean in the Roman era. And so there's all this temptation on these small fledgling churches from the outside. But as if that's not bad enough, they're, they're also being attacked from the inside, as you see in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And so you have false teachers and an immoral culture leaving these, these churches very vulnerable. They're in jeopardy. And for this reason, Paul leaves Titus behind. And he gives him his marching orders there in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so Paul, Paul says, Titus, you need to go and you need to set things in order in these churches. So how do you do that? Well, you set them in order first by appointing leaders, or as the Bible calls them, elders. That, they, that these churches need what every church needs, godly men who are committed to the word of God, who love the people of God, and live lives that bring honor to God. 
That's God's plan for leading his people. In fact, it's always been his plan, it seems. The, the idea of elders simply has grown out of the soil of the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, you see elders all over the place. For instance, in Deuteronomy 27, we read that Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment. Or you can look in Joel chapter 1, consecrate a fast. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. See, once again, a reference to elders. By the way, that passage is interesting to me in light of what we plan to do on Wednesday. We are doing exactly that. We are calling the people together to gather in the house of God, to cry out to God. The elders are calling for that and for us to fast as well. And so if you are unaware, please, please be aware, you're, if you're a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, your elders are calling for you to fast this Wednesday and to gather on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in this building that we might pray for those who are suffering in our church, just as we see being hap- happening in the Old Testament. Well, anyway, so we see that these elders are emerging from the soil of the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament, what do we see? Well, we see elders in every church. In fact, verse 5 you see that, that Titus is to appoint elders, or maybe your translation says ordain. That's where we get the word ordain that we sometimes use in church context. We read in the book of Philippians, by the way, beginning Paul, with these words, Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the overseers, which I'll explain to you in a moment, is just another word for elders. Peter would write to the elders in Galatia. James would write to the elders in the diaspora. Acts, we would read about the elders in Jerusalem. And here in the book of Titus, we read about elders in Crete. That Jesus, listen, Jesus leads his people through his under-shepherds called elders. And therefore, Paul explains in this book how elders are to live and what they do. And those are just simply my two points this morning. How do elders live and what they do? Before we get to those points, I already know that many, this is my fear at least, that many of you are thinking, okay, I now understand this is a sermon on eldership. So that applies to like six men in this building, okay? And so this is about as exciting as like a lecture on the principal parts of irregular Greek verbs. And you're not not like, okay, tell me about elders. No, so you need to listen. All of you need to listen for a number of reasons, I think. One, simply this is the word of God. And you should listen to the word of God. It's profitable for you. Two, this is going to help you understand how your church uh, organizes itself. How you, uh, give you a greater understanding of Hamilton Baptist Church. Three, it may help some of you prepare for future ministry. Some of you men one day will be an elder in the church. Maybe this church. Maybe another church. And so this is going to be helpful for you. Four, it's going to help you learn how to pray for your elders. Which your elders desperately need. Right? As our church needs us praying for our elders. And, and then I don't even know what number I'm on, five or seven or something. But Dave even alluded to it in his, prayer, in his pastoral prayer, if you were listening, that, that there's, there's relevance for this idea of eldership pretty much in, in all aspects of life. For instance, if you're involved in any type of ministry, this is going to be very helpful. You teach a Sunday school, community group, you, you lead in VBS, right? Or you one-on-one discipleship, you're a ministry lead. This is going to help you. And, and moreover, God is constantly putting us in shepherding positions. Every dad needs to pay attention this morning. Every mom even children, as they learn how they should respond to their parents' leadership. And so let's just toss aside these ideas that this is irrelevant to you and jump in with the excitement that's in your heart and mind, right? Here we go. So number one, how should elders live? Question, what do you look for in an elder? What do you look for in a leader in the church? Well, interestingly, I think you don't look for what really the culture looks for. You'll see in a moment, we're not looking for Mr. Successful. We're not looking for Mr. Gifted. We're not looking for Mr. Education, Mr. Money, and all the rest. The essential requirements for church leadership is not their giftedness, but their godliness. It's not a matter of your communication skills. It's not a matter of your administrative capacity. It's not a matter of your extroverted personality. It's not a matter of all your accomplishments. It's not what they can do that is primary of primary importance. It is who they are, how they live. God wants godly men leading his church. 
And so Paul will go on, will he not, and list the character qualifications that must be present in those who would lead God's people. In fact, uh, it, it, it is a list, I think, about 11 different and least character qualities, or more than that, actually. And uh, the, you should know that your elders gathered on Thursday night, and we actually read this passage together and uh, talked about it a bit. And even reading it, in fact, it happened just again, as I was reading it a moment ago, there's a little voice in my heart that whispers, and I trust it's in all your elders' voices, and the voice says, you should quit, okay? Uh, this is too hard. This bar is too high. And this is why we need your prayers. We want to be men like this. We want to have church, not just elders, but church filled with men like this. In fact, you look in verse 6, look how he starts. If anyone is above reproach. Maybe your translation says blameless. If anyone is blameless. In fact, that seems to be the heading, the umbrella for all the other qualities. It's listed again there in verse 7, isn't it? For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must be blameless. Now, we need to be careful. What does he mean by blameless? Well, it doesn't mean sinless, right? It doesn't mean faultless, right? If, if he means sinless, how many elders would any church have? Right? Zero, okay? There would be no church leadership. And so what, what he means is this idea of reputation, that other people don't bring reproach on him. Other people, he's not, he's not open to the blame from other people. It's about his, who he is. It's not, not by the way that everybody likes him. Jesus would have failed that test. But can you legitimately bring a charge of some type of moral failing against this man? Can you bring an accusation? If we decided that this man maybe, you know, that Lenny should be an elder, and a number of people said, no, no, Lenny shouldn't be an elder because of this and because of that. That would be an example of someone who's not above blame. That's, that's someone that's open to these charges. And so what Paul is kind of getting at is that they have a reputation of, of being godly, of being, as he says, blameless. In fact, blameless, first of all, in regard to his family. It's here that Paul begins, that we begin by looking at the elder's family. You see that in verse 6, don't you? That if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So Paul says you look first at his home. That the home is the clearest display of someone's character. And I think you could probably relate to that, right? Because there are a few things that put us in the flesh, I think, than dealing with relationships in the home. And what I mean, I mean, I, listen, I could pretend at church. Can't you? Right? We're here for a couple hours. It's easy to put on a good face, isn't it? It's hard to keep that up at home. Right? You can't pretend at home. The real person emerges. And so he says, Titus, you're looking for elders? You begin in their home. And you look, first of all, at his marriage, and you make sure that this man is the husband of one wife, he says in verse 6. Now, this little phrase, the husband of one wife, has caused a great deal of confusion. And it probably shouldn't. So what does he mean by the husband of one wife? Well, he's not referring to polygamy, a man who has more than one wife. That wasn't practiced at this time and in this place. And moreover, he's not referring to someone who's been remarried, someone who's maybe a widower and then went on to remarry. Um, in fact, the Bible actually encourages remarriage for widows and widowers. He's also not speaking of someone who's never been married, right? You're the husband of one wife. Well, that person's not married, therefore he can't be an elder. No, that would have disqualified Paul, probably Titus, and certainly Jesus could never have served as a church leader. And so I think we should dismiss that. Now, many people have suggested that this means that he cannot... Of be, cannot be a divorced man. That's what it means to be a husband of one life. He cannot have had a divorce. And I would suggest I don't think that's a faithful reading of this passage. And I don't think it's, it's faithful for, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is, is that we sh I, I'm not sure we should look at a man's distant past and see some type of sin that he might have committed. And that, that sin in the past now disqualifies him from church leadership. For instance, if, if there was a man who was once a drunkard and has, you know, and, and has repented from alcoholism, for instance, and now has lived 10 years clean and sober, would we say to that man, you are not qualified to be an elder because you're a past sin? I don't think we would. In fact, we would say this man's a model of what repentance looks like. And so I'm not sure that we should say that past sins disqualify someone from present ministry. Moreover, I would also say not all divorces are sinful. Now, all divorces are caused by sin. What the Bible says, a number of 
cases, that there are times when it is permitted for a man to be divorced. And so I don't think he's referring to divorce. So what then does this phrase mean, the husband of um, one wife? Well, the literal rendering, and maybe you've heard this before, is he is a one-woman man, which to me sounds like a country song. I don't know about you. (laughs) It's a man devoted to his wife, a man who has demonstrated a pattern of faithfulness in his marriage. And by the way, that was not practiced in Paul's day. Uh, Prostitution was rampant. Many men had legal wives for procreation and mistresses on the side for pleasure. And by the way, that struggle doesn't, didn't end on Crete 2,000 years ago. It continues today. In fact, you might be alarmed to know that 24 million Americans had sexual involvement with someone other than their spouse last week. 24 million last week. Well, you say, certainly not church leaders, certainly not pastors. Well, according to author Patrick Means, the author of Men's Secret Wars, 25% of pastors practicing in America have had an extramarital affair. And God says, it should not be so. The man is to be devoted to his wife. And by the way, sexual fidelity is just the first step, isn't it? Right? This man, the elders, shouldn't be men who love and sacrifice and lead their wives. And this is true for all men who are married. Listen, men, men, when work stops and you pull into the driveway, you know what? Your day is not done. Now, second shift begins. Okay? And second shift's not your wives, by the way. That's your kids. There's homework to, to help with, and there's discipline to do, and there's praying and play to happen, right? There's diapers to change, right? I've been changing diapers for 14 years. That's like a third of my life. I don't know if I'll ever stop changing diapers, right? But there is work to be done. There are kids to minister to. And then you get to 8 o'clock or whatever it is. The kids go into bed, and you say, okay, finally, it's my time. No, no, that's third shift. That's when it's now, it's honey's time. And you pour into your wife and you encourage your wife and you check into your wife's heart. How you doing, babe? What's going on? Tell me what's happening. And you say, well, when is my time? Well, your time is when you drive, okay? That's when you're driving to work. That's your time. You drive home. That's your time. You say, I don't like that. I tell you, stay single, okay? This is what God calls us to do. We are to be men who are devoted in serving, sacrificing, and loving our wives, Men, can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Elders are to be men who are above reproach in the commitment to their wives and to their children. You also see that in verse 6, don't you? Another troubling phrase for many. He says, and his children are believers. Now that word believers can equally be translated faithful. In fact, the King James and the New King James Version both translate it faithful children. So which is it? Are they believers, which seems to imply they're saved, right? They place their faith in Christ, or are they faithful to their father? And I would suggest for a couple reasons that the better understanding of this is that the children are faithful to their father. One reason is, is that whether your children believe and are saved is not in the hands of the father. I can't make my children believe. No man can. And the, the other reason is what Paul, the way I think it's, it's better understood to be faithful is look how Paul continues in there in verse 6. He says, the children are to be, if you will, faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. If what he means is that your children are, are, are saved, your children are believers, then he wouldn't go on to list what he lists, not open to the charge of debauchery. It would be like saying that they're believers and they're not killing people. Okay, well, the second part is, is unnecessary, right? If they're believers, you assume they're not killing people. If they're believers, you assume they're not out in wild drinking parties of debauchery, and they're not open to the accusation of insubordination. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, your children need to be faithful. Well, what does that look like? Well, part of what that looks like is they're not doing these things, like debauchery and like insubordination and so forth. And so um, I think he's clear, clarifying that he's, they're, they're submissive to their father. The, the issue is their children's behavior, not their children's beliefs. Elders' children should, be, should not be uncontrollable, should not be disobedient, 
And I know uh, we got the funny kind of stereotype of the the pastor's kid, right? Swimming in the baptistry while daddy's preaching and all that. And the uncontrollable, wild little rascal. And it may be silly and it may cause a couple chuckles, but I'll tell you it should not be so. Pastor's children, elder's children are to be faithful children. And it seems to me, by the way, that he's specifically identifying children perhaps in their teen years. These are still children under the authority of their father, but they are children who are open to the accusation of debauchery. And I don't know a lot of five-year-olds who you would accuse of debauchery. And so these seem to be children kind of coming into their own, and are they following their father's instruction? And I think this is just terribly important for all of us fathers here, just not us elders or those who aspire to be. Your children are malleable. They will be formed. They will be formed by television. They will be formed by video games. They will be formed by public school, private school, home school. They will be formed by culture. And they can be formed by you. Are you seeking to form your children? Are you leading them? Are you guiding them? Are you praying for them? Are you praying with them? Are you teaching them? Are you forming them? The father is held responsible for the behavior of his children while they are at home. Now, this is particularly important for elders. And in fact, I was asking my kids about this last night. I said, why, do, why is it important that el- elders have obedient children? And, and one of my kids God gave us the right answer, right from Scripture. Because the proving ground for their ministry in the church is the home. Right? It's not seminary. It's not your calling It's not your giftedness. It's how you manage your home. So Paul similarly writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, Paul says you can't lead your wife and your kids. You can't lead your family. How are you going to lead God's family? So he has to be blameless in the home in order to be an elder. And by the way, if he can't manage... Uh, it's not just he needs to manage his home. Paul goes on and says he needs, he needs to be able to manage himself. And if he can't manage himself, he likewise should not serve in this capacity. And he goes on in verses 7 and 8 and lists 11 different characteristics that an, or virtues that an elder is to have, beginning actually with five vices that an elder should avoid. Those are found there in verse 7. For an overseer... As God's steward must be above reproach. There's that phrase again, isn't it? He must, and here's the five vices, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Okay, so the elder can't be arrogant. One translation puts it self-willed. Elders can't, you know, elders are given authority and influence. It's very tempting to misuse it for your own way, to please yourself. Right? It's very easy for men to, who, who are in positions of authority not to receive counsel, not to receive criticism, to never admit they're wrong, never to say, I'm sorry. It's very easy for them to assert their rights and to care little for the church. And before you know it, they're standing back and looking at the church and saying, is this not the great Babylon which I have built? And they begin to use the church for their own purposes. The church exists for them. So Paul says only humble men should lead. People who echo the words of John the Baptist in reference to Jesus. I must decrease and he must increase. Second, they are not to be quick-tempered. The reason is, is elders will deal with difficult situations. Sometimes they'll deal with difficult people. And in other words, there are plenty of opportunities for anger to emerge. Therefore, if a man is prone to anger, if a man would rather speak his mind in frustration than listen in love, he is not fit for church leadership. Now, he is not referring to someone who has an occasional burst of anger. He's talking about someone who is controlled by anger, someone that people will look and say, that's an angry person. Don't get on their bad side because they're going to let you have it, right? You avoid those kind of people, don't you? Well, an angry elder becomes inaccessible. He drives people away. Third, he's not to be a drunkard, which to me sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Right? Drunks make bad elders. But evidently, there was a need to explain that in Crete. Number four, he's not to be violent. You want him to be gentle, a peaceable man. Now, not a coward, not someone who runs from conflict, but someone who is not violent. King James Version says striker. It's not a striker. They hit people, whether physically or verbally. 
Now, so far, just looking at these vices, he's saying, okay, when you appoint elders, make sure you don't have a bunch of proud drunks who yell at each other and punch each other in the face, okay? And so, to be honest, I feel like, okay, I'm doing okay. I haven't hit, any, hit anybody in a while. Um, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't stop there. Okay, I haven't hit anybody in a long while. So my wife's laughing to make you think I, um, that happens occasionally. All right? So, anyways, the bar gets raised, is my point. He says, number five, he is not greedy for gain. It's a man of financial integrity and generosity. He goes on then to re- list six positive characteristics, six virtues in which the elders should have. You see those recorded in verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So an elder is to be hospitable. He is to love people, including non-Christians, including people in sin. In fact, even more than that, he's to bring them into their home, which, by the way, gives people an opportunity to see your family in action, doesn't it, when they're in your home. And bring them into their home even when it's inconvenient. You know, Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. Right? I don't know. You ever invite someone, hey, do you want to come over? Hoping they'll say no and they say yes. No, no. For the elder, and I would say for all Christians, your home is not your private haven, as many of you hope it will be. It's a place for ministry. And you want to bring people in. You want to share life together. And you want to be hospitable. This has nothing to do with decorating a dining room table. This is loving people and inviting them into your lives. Now, by the way, I find this interesting. You might, just as a footnote for us, hospitable is the same word, the Greek word, where we get the English word hospital. Okay? And it literally means just a love of strangers. The first hospitals ever known in the history of man were created by Christians. So Greeks, Romans, they created roads, they created monuments, they built coliseums for people to kill each other, right? But they never built hospitals. Christians did that. In fact, all the hospitals were, by the way, run on charity. One historian says, there is simply no evidence of any medical institution supported by voluntary contributions until we come to Christianity. Christian hospitals revolutionized the treatment of of the poor, the sick, and the dying. And so not to get political at all, but but free health care was a Christian invention based upon a conviction of the gospel. They're hospitable. Number seven, they are a lover of good. Elders love what is good. It's seen in what they talk about, what they read about, what they dream about. Number eight, they're self-controlled. They can handle themselves, handle their minds, their emotions, their words, their deeds. John MacArthur writes, an elder who does not continually monitor his own life, submitting his sins to the Lord's cleansing, is not fit to lead God's people, no matter how outwardly righteous his life may appear to be. If he acts right only when others are looking, he is doing just that, acting. Number nine, elders are upright. That is, they are fair and equitable in their dealings with others. They are not a respecter of persons, do not show favoritism. Number 10, he says they are holy. So if upright deals with our um, dealings with one another, holiness concerns our dealings with God. So the elder is separating himself from sin. And lastly, the elder is disciplined. He is dependable, consistent. He's a man consistent in, the, in word, consistent in prayer. The book of Proverbs says a man without discipline is like a city without walls. He is easy prey for the enemy. And so this is what an elder is to be. Now for the rest of us, I want you to notice something. Notice, notice what it is that God values. This is, this is what God is concerned with. My question is, this is what you, are, are you concerned with this in your life? Is this what you want to be known for, whether you're an elder or not? Because it seems like in, in, in our culture that we put more of a value on accomplishment. We put more value on whether our kids get an A or can hit a fastball or I have a corner office or a nice car than we do with godliness. Do you want people to talk about, when they talk about you, do they want to talk, you want them to talk about the things you are able to do, what you've accomplished? He's so successful, he's so gifted. Believe it or not, every once in a while, someone comes up to me after a sermon and says, Stephen, I just think you're a gifted preacher. And, and to be honest, that feels nice. I like that. I don't want to be an ungifted preacher. But, you know, one day they're going to put me in a box in a room just like this, maybe this room. And my children will gather around, and, and most of you will be gone, but some of you will still be here. And, and they'll get up and they'll say nice things about me. They'll do that with you, too. What do you want them to say? Do you want them to say, wow, so-and-so was so gifted, 
so-and-so did this, and they did that, and they accomplished this. Or you want him to get up and say, you know, Stephen, he was a godly man. I'd much rather they say, I'm a godly man than a gifted man. What about you? He's hospitable. Man, he, he, he was humble. What, what are you living for? What does your life show you're seeking after, you're pursuing? Are you seeking after significance or success? Are you, looking, are you trying to be gifted or godly? It seems to me that God is far more interested in who you are than what you can do. Are you? Well, of course, God is. That's not to say that God isn't interested in what we can do. Though I think he's more interested in who we are, but you see elders have to do things. And so consider second this morning what it is that elders do. I would like to simply break that down into three, three, answer that question with three answers. First of all, elders shepherd the church. They, that is, the word shepherd in the Bible is the same word pastor. So we might say elders pastor the church, or we might say shepherd the church. That, that pastors uh, almost, oh, by the way, the word pastor in the New Testament is almost always a verb. There's one place in the entire New Testament where pastor is a noun. He is a pastor. That's only one time. Most of the time, what we see is that pastor is used as a verb or shepherding. So 1 Peter 5, for instance, elders pastor or elders shepherd the flock. That is, they, they care for the flock. They love the flock. They guide. They encourage the people. They're involved in their lives. So in other words, elders are not simply a board of trustees. Some churches have this model where you hire a pastor who does the work of the ministry, and then the elders gather at a meeting every once in a while, and they assess the ministry. Maybe they look at the finances and all that. And the pastor brings new initiatives to the elders and the elders either get a thumbs up or a thumbs down, right? And, and, and they, they'll, they'll really approve or reject. That's not shepherding. Now, elders might do some of that, but a shepherd is with the sheep, just like Jesus. He's involved in their lives, Sunday school, community group, one-on-one. He's in You're in his home, he's out visiting, he's in the hospitals, he lives among them. In fact, Hebrews 13 talks about elders this way, they keep watch over souls. That little phrase, keep watch, is sometimes used to describe someone foregoing sleep when they watch over a child. Parents, you ever lose sleep because of your children? Of course you have, haven't you? I remember when, you know, I have a house full of asthmatics, and I, I remember when, my, when my, a couple of my kids were little, either Allegra and I, we would sit, when they're having an asthma attack, and we're doing everything we can to control it, and we'd sit by that bed while the little one-year-old slept, just making sure they're still breathing, just praying, God, keep them breathing, right? I remember many nights doing that. And now, now I have a 14-year-old, so I'm, I'm headed into new territory. And, and some of you, you know what teen years are like, and they keep you up for an entirely different reason, don't they? They're out with their friends, and what are you up? You're, you can't sleep. You're, and what are you doing? You're praying, God, will you keep them from sin? Help them to make wise and righteous decisions. They, you, losing sleep is part of being a parent. It's almost as if God is saying, I want that for my children too. I, I, wanna, I want there to be uh, elders amongst my people who love them enough to lose sleep over them, to keep watch over them. Which is, I think, why it's no surprise that you have this list of qualifications for these standards that God has. Because God's not going to trust his children to anyone. So elders shepherd the flock. Number two, elders oversee the church. You see this in verse seven. For an overseer, right, as God's steward. Now, he's not talking about a different office. Right, verse five, appoint elders. He gets to verse seven, an overseer. That's just a different way to talk about the same position. Elder is a synonym for overseer, which by the way is a synonym for pastor. Pastor's not a different job than an elder. Elder's pastor. So you, and you may not be interested, but I'll tell you anyways. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros, where you get the word Presbyterian. The Greek word for overseer is episkopos, where you get the, uh, the, the, the English word episcopalian. Right? The Greek word for pastor is poimen, where you get no English words from. Okay? Right? So, but, so these, these are all terms for the same office. Um, and, and sometimes overseers translated bishop. Now, the, some church traditions have elevated this role of bishop that he oversees a number of churches. And, and, and they will admit, those church denominations will admit that's not biblical. But they think the church has the authority to structure it however they want. But an overseer or a bishop, God says, these elders oversee 
the church. Well, what does that mean? Well, they, they lead the church. They have authority over the church. They govern the church. If you are a Christian, you are to be under the authority of church eldership. And I know that's not popular in America. And it, it might not be popular with many of you. And whether it's popular or not, I, I'm sorry to say it's biblical. That there is a, th- a church authority in your life. It's why we practice church membership here. Because we want to very clearly identify who is Hamilton Baptist Church. And by the way, if you're interested in learning more about Hamilton, joining Hamilton Baptist Church, we have a new members class starting next Sunday for four consecutive Sundays during our Sunday school hour. We'd love for you to sign the book. Let us know you're coming. Elders lead those who they understand to be the church. Now you think, okay, well, that sounds like Stephen really likes power, right? All this authority, that's pretty, you know, it's just kind of a power grab. Please understand when the Bible talks about authority, it doesn't talk, it's not talking about power. It's rather talking about service and sacrifice. For instance, Jesus tells a number of men who want power, he says to them, um, whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So authority given to the elders is given to the elders because these are men who love the church so much that they'll serve them as Jesus calls us to and sacrifice them and give themselves to them. A faithful overseer is one who has answered the call that God is saying, I want you to come and I want you to die to yourself for the sake of my people. That's what it means to lead and to oversee. In fact, I think it's very helpful what Paul says in verse seven, for an overseer as God's steward. So what kind of authority does an elder have? He has the authority of a steward. A steward is not someone who owns a home, but someone who is put in charge of the home and is to run the home according to the revealed will of the owner. So Joseph in Potiphar's house was the steward. He didn't own the home, it was Potiphar's home, but he manages the servants and he manages the finances and the affairs of the home and he, he doesn't own it, but he's doing what he can on behalf of the person who does. It, the modern example, I think, and I was sharing this with my kids last night, it's like a babysitter. Right, so uh, you, you want to get away with your, your your spouse for a couple hours? You bring the babysitter over, and what do you do? The first thing you do is you you reveal your will to them. You say, "Okay, they could eat this. They can't eat that. They can watch this. They can't watch that. Boys cannot give girls haircuts. Right? Uh, b- baseball's an outdoor sport, and all the rest. Right? And you reveal your will to them, and you go off, and you put them as a steward in charge over your estate. Now, when you come back, and the babysitter has painted the walls pink and gotten rid of the dogs and is upstairs using your toothbrush. She's no longer acting like a steward. She's acting like an owner. Elders are not to be owners of God's house. They are to take the revealed will of God and based upon that, as stewards, lead God's people and care for them. And because they're given this authority, there is to be a plurality of elders, Every place in the Bible, you see that there is always more than one pastor in every church, more than one elder in every church. You won't find a single church governed by a single elder. And the reason is, is because elders are also under authority with their fellow elders. The danger is if you have one guy who's in charge, one danger is you create these little popedoms, right? And he's kind of just running the place however he wants. Now, the, the, probably the greater danger is that he's going to make foolish decisions. Because no one man has all wisdom. And the Bible says there is wisdom in counsel. So I, I happen to be one of the elders. And I have no more authority than any of the other five elders. It's not like they each get one vote and I get six. Though that would be awesome. Right? <laughs> no, I, I get one vote too. In fact, I, I, you should know I lose votes all the time. I'm constantly outvoted. And years from now, they will come and apologize to me. And I'll tell you, that, that's going to be a great day, okay? But I need to submit to, to godly men who love me and love the church, even when I don't want to, even when I think they're wrong. Because this is how God has set up the leadership in the church. Elders shepherd the church, they oversee the church, oh, and lastly, they teach the church. You see that in verse 9, don't you? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the church's primary teachers are the elders. These are men who are committed to the word of God. They study it, they cherish it, they memorize it, they live by it. They're convinced that the word is alive. 
They, they are men who believe that the word alone reveals the character of God and the will of God and the promises of God. They are men who are committed and believe that the word alone shows us how to follow God and how to serve God and how to love God. And so they hold fast to that word. And they do so for two reasons. You see that in verse 9, don't you? He holds fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that, number one, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And number two, rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are to deliver truth and expose error. Or as John Calvin said some time ago, the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for driving away wolves. So think about those two briefly. Elders are to give instruction. And you see what? In sound doctrine. Sound simply means healthy. You've heard the phrase, he's of sound mind. He's of healthy mind. And so they teach healthy doctrine so that there will be healthy Christians in a healthy church. This is, by the way, how elders love the church. One of the ways. Right? And, and once I start you know, putting the Bible aside and start talking to you with just simple alluring stories or personal experience, you know I'm not loving you well if I'm not giving you the word, right? The elders study the Bible and they teach it to you so that you can know God and that you can grow in your love and obedience of God. Now, it doesn't mean every elder is a preacher. That's not true. There are many ways to teach God's word. We have Sunday schools and community group and VBS and children's ministry and one-on-one, but every elder is a teacher, in fact, if you look at this passage, this, all, what, all five verses here, you put them all together, everything that's said of an elder, almost everything except one thing that I could point out, can be said of every single Christian, right? It, it's not that, okay, elders can't be drunks, but the rest of you can. Right? No, we're, we're all not. None of us should be drunks, okay? The only thing that's unique to elders is that he is someone who can clearly and accurately communicate the scripture. He's to give sound doctrine. In fact, the Bible actually warns people from being teachers. Not every one of you should assume to be teachers, my brothers, our uh, James writes for us. So he is to teach sound doctrine. If there is sound doctrine or healthy teaching, then there can also be what? Sick doctrine or unhealthy teaching, which is why Paul says he must rebuke those who contradict it. Now, that sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? Rebuking people for what they believe. I mean, are we really going to do that? Well, my friends, um, I'm afraid so. That doctrine matters. And there is false doctrine out there. We will see that next time we're in Titus. And the elder is to protect the church from things that are not true. And I think you really only need a passing understanding of church history to realize there are tens and tens of thousands of churches, just like Hamilton Baptist Church, who once held to the gospel and no longer do. And I can almost guarantee in virtually every one of those cases that you can trace that digression from believing the gospel to abandoning it to men in leadership who did not stand up to false doctrine whether it was taught in the church or whether it was in their own hearts. And so God says, yes, they are to rebuke those who contradict the truth. So here's the challenge. Do you, do you, I wonder if you see the balance there. That, that, that elders can't be domineering. They can't be self-willed. They can't over-elder. Right? They, they, they're not guys who are quick to be offended and everything is personalized and, and, and they make everything about them and they just want control. They can't over-elder but they also can't under-elder, right? They need to rebuke those who are an heir. They, they can't just run away from confrontation and fail to correct false teaching and give in to whenever someone gets, uh, gets in their face. They, 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 they can't be simply guys who are seeking comfort, so they can't be domineering, but they can't be timid and afraid. There's a balance there. In fact, as I consider this entire passage, as we close our time this morning, I am renewed in my thankfulness for the men who serve this church as its elders. These are men uh, that you might not know who sacrificed their time, shed their tears, and earnestly pray for the congregation known as Hamilton Baptist Church. And in many ways, I am in awe of them. I am so thankful for them. Are you? Perhaps you might one day aspire to this position. 
Maybe you're thinking, maybe God's been laying this on your heart. Maybe I need to serve the church in this way. Okay, will you let one of your elders know and that we can begin, perhaps, to begin to disciple and train and lead you in that direction? I think sometimes people has, God has grown people and he's equipped people and he's pushing people into this role and they run away from it. They don't want it. They're like Saul. Remember Saul, King Saul, who was chosen by God and anointed by Samuel and the time came for him to start ruling, to bring him out, and he was hiding among the luggage. And I wonder if there are men here hiding among the luggage. God's saying, I need you to serve my people this way. I need you to lead and love my church in this way. Will you let us know if God is burdening you with that? And for the rest of you, will you pray for your elders? So, well, how, how can I pray for them? Well, here it is, Titus 1. This, here's your prayer list. You don't even know what's going on in our life. You just pray, God, will you, will you help Josh to be devoted to his wife? Will you help Stephen to, to have children who are faithful to him? Will you, will you help John not to be arrogant? And will you help Craig to love what is good? And will you help Dave to be upright? And will you, will you help Mark to be self-controlled? You pray for them. We need that. And above all, I think maybe you pray that we would be men who hold fast to the word of God as we have received it. In fact, I don't think, just don't pray for us. You pray this for yourself, can't you? You pray for this for your spouse and for your children, that we all would be people like this, that we would pray for one another, that we would see all these characteristics in all of ourselves. Of course, we all fall short, don't we? None of us will keep this list. In fact, I, I, I know of only one. His name is Jesus. You know, Jesus was accused of being a drunk. Luke 7. But the accusation didn't stick because he was above reproach. You know, there was a time when Jesus should have, his feet should be washed, but, but he actually rose up and took the role of a servant because he wasn't arrogant. Do, do you know that, that, that Peter offered Jesus a sword, but he wouldn't take it because he wasn't quick-tempered or violent? In fact, the devil offered him the nations, the world. He refused because he wasn't greedy for gain. He was hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Jesus was upright, holy, and disciplined. And did he hold to the word? Did he teach it and rebuke those who contradicted it? Time and time again. You see, Jesus is the ultimate elder, isn't he? He is the chief pastor. And he, in fact, he loves the sheep like no shepherd ever has. He loves them so much that he allowed his sheep to kill him so that he might save them. He even told him, you do it. I am the good shepherd. I am the good pastor who lays down his life for the sheep. I wonder, are you in his flock? Are you one of his sheep? You see how much he loves you. He's given his life up for you. He's died to pay the penalty for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and now he says, if you would place your faith in me, if you would trust in me, I'll bring you into my flock, and I will pastor you all the days of your life, even all the way into heaven. I'll forgive you of all your sins and bring you into my family. All you have to do is yield your life to him in faith. I pray that he would work in your heart even to do so now. And for those of us, the many of us who have received that salvation, who are part of his flock, who have him as our shepherd, he has put us in a church with men to lead us, that we might become more and more like him. May we give ourselves to that. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, which instructs us this morning. We are mostly thankful for our Lord. Even when men fail, he will never fail us. He is unbelievably good. May we therefore aspire to be like him and to obey him. Do this in our hearts even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.